You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Red Door, good to be with you again. Well done, you. Let me add my congratulations to what Joanna said about getting here on time today. Uh, well done. You did it. Or your iPhone did it for you. Either way, good job you. We did lose an hour overnight, which is hard to take. Um, I was explaining to Judah and India, tucking them into bed last night, that uh, about daylight savings time and had to explain that no, we didn't change anything to do with like lunar patterns. We didn't adjust the sun or the moon. It's just a dumb idea someone had one day that we would just give up an hour uh, for no reason. Um, so if they didn't get it, I, I don't really get it either. But well done to you. You're here on time. Um, I had the misfortune of actually seeing the time change overnight uh, from 1.59 to 3. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I'd not, I've been, I'm just not sleeping very well. I used to, before the pandemic, I used to sleep like a, like a baby log. That's how, that's how I used to sleep. And now, I'm just, I'm struggling. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Romans 8, which I'm so grateful for. It's a privilege to open up what is probably the best chapter in literature. Um, I'm going to try and prove to you that that's the case over the next eight weeks anyway. Uh, we, we covered this in 2018. We preached through the whole of Romans, but we... We covered chapter 8 in three weeks, which is an abomination. Um, I actually wasn't here. I was suffering for the gospel in Hawaii, so um, I wasn't here for it. So this is my first time at it uh, in, at Red Door, and we're going to take eight weeks just to make our way verse by verse through this whole chapter. Uh, there is so much gospel gold to be mined from this chapter, so I encourage you, turn up every week, uh, and let's do this together. Um, thank you, Graham, for reading that uh, passage for us. We're going to be in, in verse 1 to 4 today. And um, coming into Romans 8 kind of reminds me of what it was like as a kid um, back in the 1900s, as I like to say to my kids. Um, back in the 1900s, growing up, uh, as I did coming to birthdays each year, um, we would have this little tradition uh, in our family whereby uh, you would wake up on the morning of your birthday and there would be a string attached to the handle of your door uh, to your bedroom and uh, that string would leave you over like the 13 acre property um, that we grew up in uh, would lead you from gift to gift and uh, it strikes me that that's a little bit like Romans 8 we're going to find a whole pile of gifts over the next eight weeks and my job is just to pick up the string that Paul has tied to our bedroom door and to kind of guide us along and to discover each gift as we go and like growing up um, with the, the string on the door the, 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 you would always have the same thing would happen you would begin knowing that the string was going to lead you all around the place before you got to your first gift and that's a little bit like well, not only verse 1 to 4, but also verse 5 to 11 that we get to next week. It's, it takes a little bit of following, a little bit of unpicking, a little bit of context setting to find 
the gifts, but it's well worth the trouble. And we're going to do that this morning as we work through what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law and what it means for us not to be under the condemnation of the law. We'll get to that in just a second. So let's jump in at verse 1 where it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an opening. That's your first gift. Uh, it turns out it was right at your door. Uh, that's your first gift. To understand what it means, though, for us to be, uh, therefore, now under, not under condemnation, we need to do a fair bit of work. And first of all, we need to, as the, the, the preacher always says, it's a bit of a trope, but when you see the word therefore, you need to what? Ask what it's there for. Okay, so what, why does he begin this this, this chapter, this glorious chapter, verse 1, therefore. Very often when Paul uses the word therefore in his epistles, you'll find the reason for the therefore in the immediate preceding context. That's actually not so much the case with this. If you look at the immediate preceding context, that is chapter 7, you'll not come to the conclusion that therefore there is now no condemnation, you'll think, therefore we're screwed. That's what you'll think if you read through chapter 7. Um, and so actually the therefore is there to summarize all of the chapters from, from, num from chapter 1 up until now. From chapter 1 through 7, Paul has been working through this argument. It's like the thread from the, from the bedroom door. It's an argument about why it is that we are saved, why it is that we can have assurance that we're not going to be condemned. And so let me just run through a few key passages for you. First of all, from Romans 1, and this is, you'll see the, the thread that runs through all of these. Uh, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of, sal of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then it goes on into chapter 3, same thread. For no one will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, by works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, there's a few but now, great but nows in Romans, that's one of them. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Again, next chapter, chapter 4. He says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1, sort of the corollary to our 8 verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, and I could have picked a dozen more, in chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another. 
You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And it's from that thread and in that context that he comes to this chapter in verse 1 and says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And really the power of this verse is contained in two two-letter words. The thrust, the power, the efficacy of this verse is contained in two two-letter words. The first one, first two-letter word is no. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now, if you are not just um, consuming this sermon whole and not checking it as you go, which you ought to be doing, then you will probably stop here and say, hang on a second, that can't be right. It can't be true that, that there is no condemnation for me. We don't have to search far, right, in our experience day to day to find condemnation. It's all around us. It's in the world, it's in ourselves, it's in the devil. Like the world around us is just replete with condemnation for us. It is just waiting. In fact, the world, particularly the world that we have constructed for ourselves in 2021, is prone, right? It's, 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 it's spring-loaded waiting to pounce and to, con- to condemn us. This is a social phenomenon, at least particularly in the West, which has been picked up on by many, including people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Uh, Douglas Murray has written extensively on this. Just the, 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 the fact that our culture is a culture of judgment and condemnation. That as we have moved away from the gospel underpinnings of Western civilization, what we are left with is a culture without grace. A culture that is unwilling to forgive the debts, transgressions, sins of others. And this is primed by the social media age that we live in. Much easier to condemn someone through a screen than in person. In fact, uh, I have a book whole book that's been written on this, uh, John Ronson, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, it's called. And uh, uh, it says just inside the cover, it says this, um, of people who are found out, of people who are, you know, that, that tweet that they tweeted in 2002 that was mildly racist or even particularly racist, right? Uh, that will find, your sin will find you out online and you will be condemned. He writes of of those people. Once their transgression is revealed, collective outrage circles with the force of a hurricane, and the next thing you know, they're being torn apart by an angry mob, jeered at, demonized, sometimes even fired from their job. A great renaissance of public shaming is sweeping our land, he says. Uh, And that book is a few years old now. It's only increased since then. So, We don't need to go far to find people who are willing to condemn us. It happens all the time. If you make the mistake of having a social media account, you've probably come across this at some point. I've seen in the in the last couple of months the 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 tragedy 
the tragedy of Christians turning on one another over whether one is vaccinated or not, just tearing one another apart. It's demonic. It really is. Uh, and and we're, we're just, as Christians, becoming exactly like the world around us. The world we live in is prone to condemn us. And it's not just from without. It's not just if you're, you know, you're on Facebook or whatever. It's, it, it comes from within. Again, this happens a lot because of the social, social media scourge. But that I'm not just being condemned from without. I'm, I'm being condemned from within because I am seeing every day scrolling through a bunch of curated images and stories that make me think that everyone has it so much more together than me. And so I'm not just condemned, I'm, I'm, I'm condemned by comparison. Compared to you guys and your social media feeds, I'm a mess. Right? And so I don't just get condemned from without, I condemn myself by comparison to what you guys are all doing and how well you're doing. So it happens because of the world around us, but it happens because of me. It's because of my internal world as much as my external one. Who is your harshest critic? Who is the most prone to condemn you? Probably not someone on Facebook. It's probably you yourself, right? Who is your harshest critic? Probably you. You don't need to be condemned from outside. You don't even need to be condemned by God. You will condemn yourself. And at one level, this is an accurate picture of things. If we can see ourselves and have a good self-awareness, then we will likely come to the conclusion that we ought to be condemned. Francis Schaeffer talks about this. He had a really good illustration of um, how, how we don't need the, the law of God to condemn us. We, we condemn ourselves. He said, imagine this. Imagine a baby that's born and around that baby's neck or what, attached to the baby in some way is a, this was a while ago, so he used the example of a tape recorder, all right? Some device. And the, the device turns on, the recording turns on every time that baby, and from the day they're born to the day they die, every time they espouse a moral imperative. That is, you should do this, you should do that. This is the way the world should be. This is the way people should behave. Imagine every time that person espoused a moral imperative, it was recorded. He said, you get to judgment day, and if all God did, if God didn't impose any, any moral law on you, if all he did was press play on that, you would be condemned by your own moral imperatives the way that you failed to live, the way that you say everyone should live, right? So we ourselves condemn ourselves. We condemn ourselves because of our comparisons to all the fake curated social media lives of people living out there, and we condemn ourselves just because we know ourselves. We condemn ourselves according to our own morality. And if that's not enough with the world and our flesh, ourselves, we have the devil, the accuser, Book of Revelation says he accuses people, he accuses the brothers and sisters day and night. His full-time job is to accuse and condemn. So you don't have to look far to feel condemned. And it's not just a feeling, it's a fact, right? So what does it mean? How can it be true that therefore there is now, now, 
in this moment, right now, no condemnation. The answer is in the next two-letter word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ Jesus. How does being in Christ mean there is no condemnation? He wants us to know this. He wants us to know the mechanism. And while there is mystery, there is a mechanism. So he says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because, verse 2 to 3a, because, he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. That's how. That's how it can be true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The reason we were condemned objectively is not just because of the comparisons uh, we have for, for those who are doing well in life. It's not just because of the condemnation showered on us because we did something wrong one day. It's not just even because of the inner sense that we have broken some intangible law. It's, it's ultimately the reason we are condemned is because we have not kept God's law. That's why we're condemned. That's why we're condemned. God's law was given to us his good and perfect law was given to his creatures so that they could live righteous lives, so that they could live worthy of a perfect God, a holy God. God's law was given so that we could essentially live like Jesus, a life without transgression, without debt, without sin. So let's talk about the law. How did the, a good law given so that we could live good lives become the law of sin and death? Let's go back one slide there. How did the, the law of God become the, something that we needed to be set free from, the law of sin and death? What's the law for? Let's talk about the law for a second. The Old Testament law was given so that humans could live righteous and worthy, but the law was unable and never saved anybody. Some of us get this mixed up sometimes. We think, oh, in the Old Testament, people were saved by the law, and then in the New Testament, we're saved by grace. Not true. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It just goes on and on and on about how those Old Testament saints who were saved by God were saved by faith in a Messiah that was yet to come. They were saved by faith in Jesus even though they had never seen him. They were anticipating him. No one was saved by adherence to the law. Nobody was saved because nobody could keep it. Nobody could ever live the way that God intended for us to live. 
And so therefore the, the law never saved anybody. Romans 3 verse 20 is part of that thread of argument that he's been making throughout the whole. He says, no one will be justified in, the sight, in, in God's sight by works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So it's a double whammy. Not only can we not keep the law, but we're more condemned because we have the law. At least if we didn't have the law, we could say, well, I didn't really know it was wrong to steal my neighbor's wife. But Paul says, no, it's even worse now because we have the law. We know that these things are wrong and it just condemns us even more. We're worse off in in terms of whether we're innocent or guilty because we should know better. The knowledge of the law has only served to condemn us. So did the law fail if it's designed to help us live righteous, perfect lives? Did the law fail? Not at all. There is nothing deficient about God's law. The problem is us. The problem is humanity, the fact that we are incapable of living the way that God has designed us to live, of living righteous lives. The law is good. Humans aren't. We can't keep it. That's why he says in our passage, chapter 8, verse 3, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. So why could the law not do what it was meant to do? Not because of the law, but because it was weakened by flesh. That's us. When Paul talks about flesh, he's talking about humanity apart from grace. Humanity without the indwelling spirit. We'll get a lot more into this next week. The flesh weakens the law. The beauty of this passage is the last couple of words in that, passage, in that verse. What the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did. That's the gospel there. You couldn't save yourself. God looked at you, your inability to save yourself. It's like someone who's like, we're like an old grandma who's trying to get the lid off a pickle jar, right? And and the pickle jar, it's full of goodness that will save us. It will give us life. It will give us eternal life if we could just get the lid off that jar. I'm making this up as I go. It might be terrible. Anyway, the, the, the jar of pickles will save us. But we're weakened by the flesh. We're weakened by 99 years on this earth and arthritis and everything that goes along with us and and malnutrition, right? And we just cannot get the lid off. And God looks at us in that state and he's like the the grandson who walks into the kitchen and just (coughs) opens it for us. What the law could not do, as much as it wanted to, the law is good. It it, It wants to see our salvation, the law is cheering us on and just and offering us this eternal life, but we cannot get it. The law can't do it since it's weakened by our flesh. God stepped in and did it. Praise the Lord. So that's the law. It's still good, by the way. You can make the mistake, sometimes, and this is what I've done in my head when I've read through Paul's letters, I have kind of turned the law into the Pharisees of the Gospels. 
The law is bad. That's, you know, that's, it's, there's grace and there's law. And we can make the mistake of thinking the, the law is the bad guy and, the, and grace is the good guy. But no, the law was God's grace to us. It was graciously given so that we might live like Jesus ultimately did. The law is still good. If you're part of a traditional Anglican congregation, you will say the Ten Commandments in every service. The law is good. How does it function today? Let's do this real quick. The law still have a, has a function today. It can't save us, but it still has a function. It's like, let me give you three images. It's like a speed camera. It's like a mirror. And it's like an MRI machine, all right? Speed camera. There's one that sits just down the road from me. And it's on the school run, which means it gets 450 school mums every morning because no one drives faster than school mums on the school run, all right? Anyway, it's a gold mine. I've got, I, I know exactly what's going on. I can see him a mile off. And so every time I come up to that stretch of road, I slow down until I get past. And then I speed up again just like everyone else, except for the unfortunate ones, right? And so that's how the law functions. It curbs our behavior, but it can't change our heart. I slow down for the speed camera. I give a snarl to the guy who's sitting there reading the paper, and then I speed up afterwards, all right? Because speed cameras don't, they change my behavior. They don't change my heart. They don't make me more obedient to the law like I should be, to the state law, I mean but they do curb my behavior. That is the function of the law now. It's, it's there to remind us that, there, that God has expectations of us. There is a moral standard. It's not just all relative, like the, 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 the culture that we live in, well, it's wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. No, there's a standard. Functions like that. It also functions like a mirror. I, you know, I, I, these days I look in the mirror and I'm, there is a lot to condemn me. Right? So if you, if you uh, most of you guys don't get this, obviously, but if you if you get to a certain age or um, whatever, you get, you start looking in the mirror and you, all you can see is flaws and wrinkles and grey hairs and scars and and wonky teeth and right and and that's how the the law functions you look into the law and you see a picture of yourself and you can see flaws you can see where you've fallen short where you've transgressed a, a mirror can show you the flaws but it can't make you beautiful can't look into a mirror and say thank you for showing me those imperfections now can we change that somehow it's not like your, your, your modern camera where you can just say, uh, fix me up a little bit when I look at myself, right? It doesn't work like that. A mirror just shows you what is. So, so it is with the law. It points out our faults and it can't make us beautiful. Last of all, similarly, it's like an MRI. It's a machine that can scan us, reveal what is broken, reveal what is malignant or or, you know, terminal, but it can't heal us. It has a function. It drives us. It drives us to a place where we are willing to receive grace. It drives us to that place where we are despairing of ourselves to save ourselves so that we might throw ourselves on the mercy 
of our Lord Jesus. So did the law fail? Not at all. The law is good. Humans can't keep it. God saw that, and and what does he do? He doesn't condemn us like we deserve. He doesn't actually do the just thing. Paul gets to this issue in Romans chapter 3, if you want to read back through there. He, He doesn't actually do what he should do if he is righteous and just. This is the scandal of the gospel. He actually, rather than condemning us and destroying us, he steps in among us. And he perfectly, in Jesus, he perfectly fulfills the law. He steps in. He keeps the law we couldn't keep, and he dies the death we should have died. That's what Jesus does. You read through the Gospels, this is what he's doing. In his life and death and resurrection, he keeps the law we couldn't keep, like all of it, without putting a foot wrong. He does not transgress God's law. He fulfills it perfectly, so he fulfills the law we could not keep, and then he dies the death we should have died as condemned people. This is crazy. So what Paul says in in verse 3 to 4, he said, What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That is a profound mystery that he just said in two verses there. Profound. The writer to the Hebrews kind of takes, uh, I don't know if he takes Paul's imagery from him, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but he, he, he kind of picks up on the same imagery and, and, and the idea that Jesus has done all of this through perfect obedience and sacrificial death. And in chapter 10, this is what he says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. We could, we, you know, it's not just every priest, it's every person who tries to atone for themselves. This is everything we do trying to get ourselves right with God. Whole religions are devised to, to give us a pathway to make ourselves righteous. So every priest, every adherent to every religion stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices, right? the same prayers, the same rituals, the same inconveniences, the same fasts. Right? They do the same thing time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man... This man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies have made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's the power of his death and resurrection. His perfect obedience and then his sacrificial death mean that those of us who are in him, those of us who are in Christ, trusting him, appropriating his perfection, his sacrifice for ourselves, those of us in Christ, uh, he has perfected 
forever. That's why there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for us in Christ because there is no condemnation for Christ himself. This is some good news. The world, the flesh, and the devil will say to us all day long, you are condemned. This is one of Satan's really pernicious tricks, and I just know all of us have heard this voice. It's the one that says, yeah, you were forgiven that day you put your hand up in the youth group, at the youth group camp. That's when God saved you. But since then, you've wrecked it. You've taken what God gave you, which was this perfect white gown, and you've covered it in blood. The blood of the people that you've sinned against. You're condemned, he'll say. He'll take you to your internet history and just go, uh-huh, still not condemned? He'll take you to the, 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 that time that you yelled at your husband and embarrassed him, humiliated him. Still not condemned? The way that you parent, the way that you do your job, the way that you slack off, the way that you cheated on taxes, the way that you went past and gave the finger to the guy in the speed camera. You were forgiven, but you've ruined it now. That's what Satan will say to you. That's probably what your own conscience will say to you, because he knows the truth. Heaven forbid social media gets a hold of your transgressions. What we need to know as people of the book, people who submit our... our, our um, people who submit our kind of intuitions to what God has said in black and white, we need to submit that inner voice of condemnation, the, the, the voice of Satan, the voice of the world. We need to submit that to the scriptures here. This passage says that the world, the flesh, and the devil can't lay a glove on you today. Satan's there just swinging it midair. He can't lay a glove on you because now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has paid the penalty for every law-breaking debt that you have committed past, present, and future. This is like being given a blank check of grace need to update that reference. It's like being given a, a platinum credit card with no limit of grace. For every debt that you incur, thousands of times per day, you are charging those debts to grace and not condemnation. This is scandalous. Let me see if I can illustrate this a little bit. The other day, I, I went for a ride with my kids to the milk bar. We've, got, we've still got a milk bar. It's like being in the 1900s. We've still got a milk bar just up the road from us, and we rode up there, and they uh, were looking through the, the lollies. Lollies aren't as good as the 1900s, but there's still a range to choose from, and so they are there with their pocket money, 
um, trying to figure out what is the most amount of sugar I can get per cent. Uh, so times haven't changed. That's always been the way, right? And they're doing the maths, and so they've got their four bucks or whatever, and they're tr they're trying. And it's, it's hours. It feels like hours of them just doing the economics of sugar to cent ratio, and and we and so they have figured it out what they are able to afford, and they haul it up to the counter, and and just as the lady is putting it through, tallying up the debt, I step in and say, Daddy's paying. Right? I put the card down and say, Daddy's, Daddy's paying. And the response they have is like, wait, what? That's exactly what India said. Wait, what? Daddy's paying? That and so they're doing a little dance and cheering because, because Daddy's paying. Daddy's covering this debt. That's what Paul is saying. Everyone who is in the Father's family has their debts covered, not just the ones that they owed from before, but all of the ones that are yet to come. I don't have a platinum credit card, but in the illustration, my credit card was enough. It was plenty enough to cover the debt of their lollies. Now, it's important to know in the illustration, there were other kids in the milk bar when I said daddy's pain, they didn't all get together and start cheering and saying daddy's pain because they don't belong to me. They were covering their own debts. Those who are in Christ are those who have been adopted into the father's family. So while my children celebrated the fact that I was paying the debt, the other children weren't privy to it. We need to know that. There is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. Now, this scandalous teaching of the gospel does raise a few problems. I remember I preached a message very much like this, like 20 years ago to a youth group, and afterwards I had this very angry mum come and talk to me and say, you can't say that. You can't say that they've got a blank check. Then you know what they're going to do? They're just going to do whatever they want. You just told them that they can do whatever they want and God will forgive them. Past, present, future, doesn't matter. It's a fair objection. And that's how I knew I was preaching the gospel. When I heard that, I was like, yes, I got it right. Because that's exactly what Paul heard from his hearers. In fact, in this very book, he addresses this. In, in chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans, he says, what should we say then? This is responding most likely to an objection. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Should I go around doing whatever I want because it means God will forgive me more and that's, that's beautiful? And then in, in verse 16 or 15, he says, what then? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. I think that's a mild translation of what he was saying. Like there's probably a four-letter word in there. It, it, just the ferocity of his like, no. And this is the point. That platinum card of grace can only be received by someone who has faith in Jesus. And those who have faith in Jesus don't have any inclination just to sin up a storm because God will forgive me anyway. Those who are in Christ have been released from the law of sin so that they can live in the Spirit, can live in joyful obedience 
can live Christ-like lives of holiness. That's the exchange. The prisoner hasn't been set free just to go out and commit a bunch of murders. He's been set free to live a righteous life. This is what next week's passage is all about, by the way. So I won't get into it too much now. But what does it mean? Now that we have been set free from the law of sin and death, what does it mean to live in the spirit of life? That's what next week, verse 5 to 11, read ahead. That's what we'll explore next week. But for now, let me pray for us. And I'm going to pray specifically that... Not just for today... And not just for this term, but for the rest of our lives, we would glory in this glorious truth. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for leading us this morning to this fundamental passage. If there is a center of the gospel, then maybe verse 1 to 4 of Romans 8 is there right in the middle. This glorious truth. It reveals that though we deserve condemnation, condemnation is not coming for us. That through Jesus' perfect obedience, through his sacrificial death, through his glorious resurrection, we have been set free from condemnation and set on a path of holiness, a life of love, that the rest of our lives might be marked by glorifying you and living for the good of others. As we look forward into next week, Lord, I pray that we would take time to chew over this passage in our small groups, in our, in our households, in our own minds, that we would we'd chew on it, consume it, and be nourished by it, and then look forward to next week where you will show us the beautiful path of obedience that you've set forward for us. Lord our God, I want to acknowledge in the midst of all of this triumph that we do fail to live that life in the spirit. We do fail to live that victory in the here and now. And we know that as that Hebrews passage puts it, you are waiting, Lord Jesus, waiting for all of your enemies, sin, Satan, death, to be made a footstool for your feet. We do live in the now and not yet. It is a time of ambiguity. It is a time where we wrestle with our disobedience and not living out the life that you've given for us to lead. So in a few minutes, Lord, as we come before you in confession, I pray that you would enable us to have true and contrite hearts. Lord, please bring us to a place of humility from which you can raise us up again to live a life of holiness. Thank you, Lord. We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us and revealing to us such a beautiful and monumental truth. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.